Welcome to Take a Seat, where we sit down with experts on a wide range of topics related to the science of human flourishing. Together, we're going to explore topics that can help us level up, give us hope, and maybe even make us feel optimistic about the future and our ability to live good lives, both individually and collectively. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Holton. I'm a coach, consultant, and speaker in the field of optimal human functioning, but I'm most passionate about science and stories that can help us create a better system of education, one that leads individuals to the greatest angels of their nature and builds stronger societies as a result. Together with the Shipley School, a global leader in educating for flourishing, we're happy to have you join us. Whether you're someone trying to build your best self or a better community, we've got something for you, so take a seat. Hello, friends. Welcome back in to Take a Seat. In this episode, we sat down with Shipley alum, author, and law student, Jesse Wang. Jesse is currently a graduate student in the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business. He's also a class action litigation law clerk for Lawyers for Justice, the managing editor of USC's Gould School of Law Law Review, and most pertinent to our conversation, author of the book, Underdog, 12 Inspirational Stories for the Despondent Law Student, a book he wrote with the help of various interviews with current and former law students about their paths to growth, their strategies for resilience, and ultimately their abilities to navigate adversity and perform at a high level while maintaining some well-being. What I love most about this book is that Jesse also donated 100% of the proceeds back to USC's Public Interest Law Foundation and Small Business Clinic. Pretty cool. We chatted about the book and some of the insights he gained from the stories within it, and his own personal experiences with early challenges in high school, as well as burnout and struggle during his early days as a law student. Jesse provided us with some of his reflections on these various experiences of growth through struggle, and also left us with some tips and tricks that might help you do the same. It was a really enjoyable conversation filled with plenty of food for thought for anyone out there struggling in various ways but in particular for recent college graduates trying to find their way in the world and figure out what it is that they want to do and contribute. So without further ado, I give you our conversation with Jesse Wang. Jesse, is that your Shipley picture I see? Shipley picture, ha- yes. Yeah, are you oh, just no, 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 to be wearing a green tie? That was my Shipley tie, but I, I took it at Emory, yeah. Repping the green and blue. <laughs> so how are you doing today? I'm good, I'm good, how are you? Good. How are things in LA? Sunny in 65 per usual, I assume? Yes. Well, actually, it's been kind of cloudy <laughs> lately, but it'll be sunny next week. By cloudy, the LA version of that is like there's a couple clouds in the sky. <laughs> and, and or smog. Sometimes it's hard to tell, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The smog is awful, but Good. everything else is great. Good. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's start here, Jesse. Um, you know, you and I got connected because you are an alumni of the Shipley School. Um, you talk about that, I think, a little bit in a recent blog post that that you did for us. But you know, I think in general, you talk a bit about your educational experience and how it really started to prepare you for some of the themes that you pull out in your book. Um, so I'd love to kind of start where it all began. Will you take us back to it? Sounds like tenth grade. You joined us here at Shipley. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I so I transferred um, from public school to Shipley back in 2011, I think it was, and um, that was such an interesting experience for me because I had gone to a school where the class sizes were enormous. Like it was a total of I think over 2,000 students within the high school at the school that I attended, uh, and and when I transferred to Shipley for the class of 2014, it was a completely different environment. There were only, I think like 76 students in my class. I think we were the smallest class too. So that was definitely, um, it was interesting knowing literally every single person in my grade. Um, But it was also interesting because I had gone from, I wasn't even a phenomenal student in public school. I like was all in all the honors classes and everything, but I didn't really do exceptionally well. Um, so when I got to Shipley, things were 
um, just extremely jarring because of how dense and how rigorous the curriculum was. Uh, and I, I have to say, I don't think I got a handle throughout me my entire first year at Shipley. I never really got a handle on my academics until my junior year, uh, which is when I started really taking a hard look at myself and being like, I got to be serious because it's time to apply for colleges. And I, I don't have the credentials to get into the schools that I'm like really uh, looking at and then trying to get into. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, and I think a couple different places, some of these quote unquote early failures and early struggles. And, you know, as an educator, I'm sitting here looking at this and reading it and I'm thinking two things really. One, these seem to be early points of practice for what you'll eventually need to kind of persist in and deal with as a law student. Right. And then eventually writing the book as well. And it also seems to me maybe like on some level you are actually allowed to fail, which is actually a prerequisite to learning how to be resilient and learning how to struggle. Are those accurate takeaways? I mean, is, was that your general experience? Do you look back on it and say, okay, yeah, it was tough. It was a struggle. I failed, but ultimately that equipped me for the long haul. Uh, you know, I agree in part to that. I, I agree in the part about failing early definitely helped make me and was a large part of helping me become more gritty in the long run. I wouldn't say my parents were totally hands-off. They were very on my case all the time, but I <laughs> sure. somehow always found a way to like, I, I think a large part of why I didn't do super well my, fir my first year at Shipley was because I really w didn't have like a set uh, study routine I kind of, I'm, so if you believe in Myers-Briggs, I'm, I'm an ENFP, so I'm very scatterbrained, but I get these sudden bursts of energy when I need them or when I find something really intriguing and interesting, and I'll go all in on that. But if things are kind of like not super intriguing to me, I tend not to um, focus as much as I should be. Um, and so I think, I never like failed anything at Shipley, but I definitely had like B's and, and a C or two my first two semesters, my first year of um, 10th grade. But um, that, that definitely was like a wake-up call for me. And that's what kind of uh, inspired me to, to do a lot better my, my second year at Shipley. So I would say that it was sort of a change within myself that allowed me to, to improve in the long run. And it doesn't sound like, you know, while they might have been very watchful, it doesn't sound like they were necessarily stepping in to stop you from getting those B's or that C plus or something along the lines, right? Like pleading with teachers to change grades and things no. of that nature. There was, there was a little bit of room to say like, okay, this isn't acceptable, but it's happened. How are you going to respond? Right. But, but to yeah. a certain extent, it sounds like that was a lot of, you know, the impetus was on you. There had to be a lot of change from within. Precisely. Yeah. They, my parents, I saw, I, they're very like traditional, like immigrant parents. They always say like the teacher's always right. If you didn't do well, it's because you didn't study enough and you got to do better the next time. And it kind of, um, it, it's so interesting because when I was like listening to, um, I, I think it's a podcast called No Stupid Questions with, there was like a guest, the guest speaker was Angela Duckworth. And she was talking about how her father, when she was younger, would always tell her, Angela, you're no genius. Um, because that is sort of like the, and I res, I related to that so much because I feel like that is a soundbite that I heard a lot when I was a kid too. It's like, no one is born a genius, uh, or in Chinese, it, it's called like tian de, which means that you are, no one is like, has a God given talent or, um, uh, but people become incredibly talented and, and successful because they work really hard, uh, to get to where they are. So that kind of work ethic um, definitely didn't come naturally to me, but after a while, um, it is something that I, I cultivated. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I happen to be married into a Vietnamese family, um, and there's a very similar sort of like work, work ethic is really important, right? Struggle is really important, and growth is really important. Um, I want to pull out, because we're on the topic, a, a piece you know from the blog post that you wrote for us. You said, quote, uh, I believed the Chinese proverb my mother used to repeat to me as a child uh, every time I didn't perform well on a test. And she would say, the clumsy bird flies early. And you explain that what this proverb means is that no matter how many times you stumble or fall, every proverbial bird, law student, or young attorney 
is capable of finding success so long as they put in the effort and practice. Absolutely. Yeah, that is something even to this day, my mom repeats that to me even throughout my law school experience. <laughs> it's just that no one is inherently incapable or, and no one is inherently capable. You know, no one's going to be handed X, Y, or Z accolade and, and, you know, that's it. You have to work for it no matter what. And if you put in the effort, um, you'll, have, you'll be able to derive some kind of uh, a reward from it. And as we said, it sounds like you started learning that really early, right? And it's been a process of, of cultivating it. You mentioned Dr. Duckworth, who ironically, this is going to be probably the third or fourth episode in which her name has come up. People really gravitate to the idea of grit. You know, there's a lot of complexity to it. But generally speaking, you know, it, it predicts a lot of positive outcomes as, as certainly as they relate to achievement, right? So, you know, what was your path after Shipley? Um, sounds like undergrad at Emory, like walk us through that, right? Undergrad, law school, those sorts of things and what you're doing now. Yeah, so um, after I'd, I improved my grades significantly um, my junior year with the help of, specifically, I think I have to um, credit uh, two people specifically, Mrs. Weigel, who was my honors history teacher, who basically taught me how to write. And I actually still keep in contact with her. Uh, and hopefully after the pandemic, we'll, we'll be able to meet up at some point. Uh, and the other person is Miss um, Kaboski, who was my college counselor. And uh, she was really instrumental in, I guess, um, helping me get through some of like the tougher moments of like, cause I had this thing where every time I didn't do super well, in a particular class, especially my junior year when I was like really putting the pressure on myself, I would just get really, really down on myself. And she would be there to sort of like pick me up and be like, you know, Jesse, you, you just got to keep going. And I know that this is hard right now, but in the long run, you'll thank yourself for, for you know, continuing to put in the effort in spite of these setbacks. Um, and so I think basically by the skin of my teeth, I, I got into Emory, which was like my reach school because my grades, like I said before, were always up and down. Like, I had a mix of like A's, B's, and C's. I think my junior year, I had mostly A's and some B's because I, I was really fighting for that, for that shot. And my college admissions essay, uh, I had written like 20 or 30 drafts of it. And eventually it came out to be, uh, I thought really compelling because it really harked, it talked about like my upbringing and my uh, heritage and everything. So getting into Emory was a big deal for me. Um, and it was interesting because once I got to Emory, things were surprisingly easy. Like, I think Shipley really prepared me for undergrad because um, I basically, my first and second year, got straight A's across the board. Um, I, granted, they were all like general education requirements. I did take a few challenging courses like computer science, like Java, um, and a lot of history and a lot of writing courses. And I eventually became a writing center consultant for Emory. Uh, which was really surprising because when I first came to Shipley, I was just like my history, my, I took modern European history and I took honors English and both teachers were just like, Jesse, you are not at the level to like continue in on the honors track at Shipley. You have to like take a step back and get some more remedial assistance. So being able to do that was like a really big redemption moment for me. And that gave me the courage to just, you know, keep going. Uh, so, but then I did business school uh, and my first semester was really, really uh, jarring for me. I, I did not do well my first semester in the business school because it was such a different experience. Like before everything was all like independent study, you like wrote essays and, you know, spend hours in the library, just like grinding out material and, and put to turning them in. In the business school, first of all, the curve is, uh, was significantly different. Like only a set number of people were able to get like an A minus or an A in any of the core classes of the business program. Second of all, it was a lot of collaboration involved and it was a lot of um, differences in personalities, I think, in the beginning. Uh, and I see myself now as a team player and in retrospect, it taught me a great deal about how to be more collaborative. But when I first entered the business program, I was very much like, I got to do this on my own. Like, and, and that just was not the way to do it because you get participation points in business school are like a huge deal and your peer reviews are a huge deal as well. So, um, that definitely impacted my grades. And I think that living off of campus for the first time and having to commute uh, every day to get to the business school, just to get to school, I think was, I know it's something that everyone has to do, but for me being like 
19 at the time and being the first time living off campus, it was, um, it was a lot of changes at like one in a very short period of time that really uh, challenged me a great deal. Um, but then again, I improved a lot and um, the latter, the second year of business school definitely um, I, I improved a, a lot again. So that was, it's kind of been like a recurring theme where I, when things change significantly, I, I stumble a bit. Uh, and then usually, historically, I've been able to catch myself and, and uh, improve over time. Yeah, right. Th- that's the topic of the book, right? Yeah. Which I, I want to dig into in just a minute. And I specifically want to double click on the mentioning of, you know, networks and other people as it relates to achievement. Before we go down that road, uh, so, w- so what happens after Emory? So at Emory, I took a business law course with a professor. Her name is Professor Burdett. She's um, really renowned, especially in the Emory networking community. Uh, and she was like a primary inspiration for me to apply to law school because I didn't even do that well in her class. It was called Legal Environment of Business. And so it's basically, a, it's actually like an overview of all of the first year law courses put into one course in, in one semester at the business school. And everyone has to take it before they graduate. And it's super challenging. It's like, the, it's known as the hardest class that you take in the business school. And I didn't even do super well. And I got like a B plus, I think. But I was just so intrigued by how challenging and how uh, just intellectually rigorous the course was that I decided, you know, maybe this is something that I want to, you know, keep honing in on and, and improving upon. So I took the LSAT. I didn't do well the first time. Uh, and people were like, you know, Jesse, like, I, I read, my, I have to say one thing, if it's anything that's the most unproductive thing that I've learned throughout college and law school admissions processes is just don't read those chat boards online. I think they're really, really unproductive and, and toxic. But basically, everyone was saying like, only one or 2% of people who take the LSAT a second time improve. And if they do improve, it's like by one or two points. I took the LSAT twice. And the second time, my score jumped 11 points because I worked hard and I, I, I studied literally every single... I would wake up at like 6 a.m. and take a whole practice test before class. So I was just like determined to prove these anonymous people on these chat boards wrong, first of all, and also because I was really intrigued by the logic of how the LSAT was structured. Um, and so I ended up applying to a bunch of law schools at the very last minute, by the way, that was like really stressful. But in the end, I got into USC. That was the most competitive law school that I was accepted to. And they gave me a really generous scholarship. So I decided, you know, what, maybe I'm going to just shoot my shot and try to, you know, uh, study law in California. And um, that's how I eventually landed at USC. And so tell us where you are in the program right now. What do you do? And you're clerking for a law firm at this moment. Is that correct? Plus taking classes? Yeah. My first year of law school, I didn't really do anything. I was like focused exclusively on school. The summer between law school and my graduation from Emory, I took this five-day like Barbary course. And the guy basically for like five days straight was just telling us like, don't join any clubs, focus just on school. You can join clubs your second year of law school. Da, 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 da. Like it's not important. You just got to like get the 4.0 and that, that'll like guarantee you a job at this big law firm. So I, you know, followed his advice and basically isolated myself for like, a semester and a half, uh, my first year of law school, and I didn't do anything except for study. And it just, um, it was just like an awful experience. It was like, it's, it was awful for everyone, but it was just super grueling because you need those social contacts. You need to have like a social life. You need to have a work-life balance. And that was not something that I um, was wary of at all. I thought, you know what, if I, like the more hours I put into constructing these outlines and studying for my exams, the better my result will be. And that was just like not the case at all. I think, and I, I do believe it was largely because of the fact that I was, I was burnt out. I was stressing myself. I was psyching myself out every day. I was going to office hours, by the way, every other day and, and participating literally in every single class because I just knew I needed to prove myself to, to get the top score because I was so um, obsessed with the result. And in the end, it didn't pan out at all. I, I performed pretty underwhelmingly across the board. And at, at that point, after my first semester of law school, I was like, is this really the path for me? Is there a way forward for me? And I knew a significant number of people actually who ended up dropping out of law school. 
after the first semester or after the first year. Um, some of which, some of whom I'm actually still pretty close to, but that was a, definitely a path that I, I had considered seriously for a bit. Why did you decide to keep going? Whereas others were dropping out, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, psych language, locus of control and self-efficacy and optimism and things like that. But, you know, clearly there's something in your mindset that when you face struggle, there's a button you can somehow push either consciously or sort of unconsciously that says like, keep going, keep stretching, have a go, see what happens. Absolutely. That's a great question. Yeah. And, and I, I mentioned it in the book a little bit, but I, um, I think the main, I mean, I think there are a lot of factors that led to my decision, but I think the main one is the fact that my grades had always been so volatile from high school to college. Like, my grades had always been up and down. And the people who ended up leaving law school, I knew them personally. And many of them were basically straight A students their entire lives. Like they had been valedictorian either in high school or in college. And that just wasn't the case for me. And I was like, well, grades have never really defined who I was before. So why should that begin to be a thing now? And second of all, I think the advice that I received from that barbering instructor to isolate myself was just completely off base. I think that is the completely wrong way to approach any type of challenger or whether it's academic or professional, you have to really engage with the community and establish a healthy work-life balance no matter what you do. Otherwise, you will burn out and you will crash. And that's what happened to a lot of my friends. But it was because of the fact that my grades had always been like a roller coaster ride that I, it didn't affect me. I think it was supposed to affect me more than it actually did. And I, I in retrospect and thinking back on it, um, I didn't know at the time, but it, it really was because of um, I'd never seen myself as like, the, the top student or the valedictorian. I'd always been the underdog. And so I'm just gonna, I, I decided I'm gonna keep being the underdog and I'm gonna see where this goes because every time I've continued to fight and pursue something, every time I encountered an obstacle that knocked me um, down, I was by con just simply continuing, uh, whether it was, you know, just maintaining a certain degree of uh, resilience over over time, I was able to come out of that hole and, and achieve something greater. So I thought, you know, I should just keep doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's three different threads, really, I want to pull on here. But one of them kind of coming back to where we started is, you know, you, you're really building up these experiences at this point, right? You are getting practiced in them. And you and it sounds like in many ways, we're pulling on previous experience as a way of sort of self talk and, and saying to yourself, I can do this again, because I've done it before in a different context, right? Now, the level of challenge and law school is going to be different than, you know, between 10th and 11th grade at Shipley. But the but the basic sort of thinking and framing is nonetheless the same, right? Like, okay, this is the newest challenge, right? At kind of a different level. But I really only have one choice, you know, which is to, to take it on and see what happens. Yeah. So... The other piece of that is, you know, we don't do it alone. And so let's let's double click on the network piece for a second, right? In, in the blog post for us, you mentioned the importance of building a network. A lot of different reasons for that, I imagine. I want you to go into them. You know, I'm thinking about your parents. I'm thinking about your teachers and college counselor at Shipley. Um, you know, mentorship at Emory, friendships and mentorship once you get into Marshall and you end up in Southern California. And one of the things that occurs to me is, you know, we know that typically what happens is when we experience stress, the body actually gets primed with, with boosts of oxytocin, right? Kind of the bonding chemical. We're actually kind of wired to reach out to get or give support in moments of stress. And what do we do very often? Exactly what you described. We isolate ourselves. We say nose to the grindstone. And sometimes we push past a tipping point. And it sounds like that's what you're describing is pushing past that tipping point. What have you learned about the collective power of the people around you to lift you up and, and help you achieve more? Absolutely. I think I've learned a lot, but just to touch on that one point you said about positive stress, I think that term, I've heard of it before and it's great that you bring it up. I think it's called like use stress or something. Correct. There's yeah. a sweet spot. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's when you kind of like use 
the stress as a, as a way to motivate yourself and, and to get into that flow state, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, I'm not sure exactly. It's, it's, it's really funny you're bringing this up because just before we jumped on, I'm literally building a slide deck because we're doing a, a personal and professional development series for Shipley alumni tonight and tomorrow. And this is the topic. The topic is framing and understanding unpleasant experiences. And you are exactly right. So I, you know, I do some coaching for the Flow Research Collective and a prerequisite in many cases of getting into flow. And for our listeners, flow is a psychological state in which we feel our best and perform our best, right? The prerequisite for getting into that is struggle. Like there has to be a certain level of challenge to focus us, to provide dopamine, to provide norepinephrine, adrenaline, those sorts of things. And so the difference a lot of times between kind of panicking and freaking out or getting into flow and rising to the challenge is how we're thinking about the stress. Is it an actual threat, i.e. do I need to drop out or is it a challenge and I need to change behavior and, and sort of rise to that challenge, which it sounds like you've done a lot of the latter of? No, absolutely. I think that's exactly what I needed to, that, I mean, this, the presentation you're going to give, I think that is the topic that I needed to hear about when I was at Shipley. But back to your question about when I was pushing myself past the point and isolating myself, for sure, absolutely. That was the stress and the anxiety kicking in. And, uh, and it was, I think, a false belief or false logical belief that, Oh, if I put in more effort, it's because I'm not doing well because I'm not trying hard enough. And so the second semester of my first year of law school, I tried even harder and I was pushing myself to the, just the brink of exhaustion. And I didn't, I actually, my grades went down and I was like, what is going on here? And that is something that happened to uh, my friend who is a, my, my best friend, uh, Gabby Rodriguez, who I, I uh, met my first year of law school, that ha- the same thing happened to her. And it wasn't until both of us learned to, really uh, um, appreciate and, and value our mental and emotional well-being, uh, whether it was through exercise, eating more, more regularly. Um, for her, it was attending uh, therapy sessions, getting an emotional support animal. It was a, a puppy named Thor. Um, um, and not to spoil much about her story, because that chapter was really interesting, I have to say, um, but she basically just went through like, a, she went through a lot in before and during law school and ended up getting into a car accident the day before her finals and having to wear a neck brace to take her finals in person. And it was just wild because she ended up doing the best she'd ever done in law. She was getting, she got like A's across the board in many of her classes um, that semester that she got into the accident because she valued her, her work-life balance and because she prioritized her health. And I think I, I really do. And she and I agree, like it was because she put herself first and, and didn't sacrifice literally her, her entire life for grades to, to get there. Are you familiar with the marshmallow study? The pretty famous psychological study at this point, like cute little kids yeah. get brought into a lab, a marshmallow is put in front of them, yada, yada, yada. And, and essentially what this study has shown kind of over time is that little kids who can avoid or resist eating the marshmallow right? Because they're promised by the researcher that they'll get a second marshmallow. So they're holding out, right? Delaying gratification for something later on. These kids in many cases tend to, you know, uh, have better life outcomes, whether that's sort of like income, um, physical health, mental health, right? Because self-regulation matters, kind of like sometimes grinding it out and waiting matters. What you're describing, I think, is what I, what I often tell people is like, sometimes you got to eat the damn marshmallow, Right. Like if you're waiting constantly, one, you're going to go past that tipping point. Right. But two, what, like, what are you waiting for? And, and you really speak to this in the blog post because you mentioned one of the most important things you have learned in addition to the surrounding yourself with a support group. Right. And a good network is that you have to savor the small wins yes. along the way. Yes. Right. That's eat. That's like sometimes you got to eat the marshmallow. Right. 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 Will you talk to us a little bit about that. Absolutely, just the small wins, uh, and I talk about that specifically about um, in Arsh's chapter. This was like during my so there's like a whole uh, sec- section of my book. I think it's like three chapters where I talk about my experience in the Los Angeles legal, ha- legal hackathon, which was this competition where you kind of like build and develop an app that fulfills some kind of legal need. Um, and I interviewed my friend Arsh, who's a classmate of mine, who's a, st- a founder of two startups already, and. 
he was telling me about how just the small wins gave him that extra boost of motivation and confidence to keep pursuing a goal. And one of the smallest win and seemingly insignificant wins at the time was when he met with this other startup founder who uh, was part of this like startup boot camp. Um, I forget exactly what the name is, but there's like a boot camp in LA that's basically like a college for startup founders and, and it helps them care them with mentors. And his mentor, uh, I think, smiled when she uh, heard his pitch for an idea. And she, when she heard his original pitch for a different idea, she was just like kind of nodding and being polite about it. But the second pitch, which was a completely different track, um, which had to do with mental health, I think his app was about um, basically like a journaling app uh, that allows you to make sure that each time uh, you feel like you're, you're, you forget to connect with a friend or a colleague, it'll remind you on your phone to, to keep track of that and to touch base with them every two or three weeks or whatever you set it to. And she was super um, interest, intrigued by that idea. And just simply having that positive reinforcement for him gave him that boost of confidence um, to, to keep pursuing that goal. And so it's important to like, whether it's like a homework assignment, like a five point assignment or participating once in a class, like it, I think appreciating that and feeling good about it and really just like patting yourself on the back for, for just getting, putting yourself out there and trying it could be something as simple as that. That helps you uh, build confidence in the long term. It's really hard to sustain motivation for human beings to sustain motivation if you're not seeing the outcomes, right? This is one of the reasons why like habits are hard to make and hard to break is typically the outcomes of habits are like down the road, depending on the habit, of course, right? Exactly. And, exactly. and the irony is sometimes we actually do see the outcomes. We actually are achieving wins. We simply are not paying attention to them or we're sort of casting them aside as if they're not real wins, right? right. Just putting one foot in front of the other sometimes is the win in and of itself. Like you said, a little bit of positive feedback, right? One good comment on a paper, um, a good mark and, you know, on a test or something along those lines. So how do you, how do you go about practicing that? I mean, I know what I would advise people to do, but do you have very conscious sort of intentional strategies around trying to savor these wins? Yes, I do now. And I have to say it did not come naturally. Um, but I'll get to that in a moment. It, but just, simple thing like very simple things like making a list and checking it off or like drawing like a smiley face like i remember when i was taking studying for the lsat i would get i would get like the most disastrous scores in the beginning i get like just like half of the questions wrong but then the second time i took uh, a practice test and I, if i got just one more question right i didn't even care if it was like a 50 percent or a 60 percent. i would just draw like a smiley face and be like go jesse you like you you got one more point that's a marginal proof. Celebrate it. Exactly. Um, but when I was at Shipley, that was just not my, my way of thinking at all. I was just, I would literally get, um, I would get really upset if I got just one question wrong on an exam that I knew was a stupid mistake or something. And I would just, it would, it would bog me down and it would, it would be like this cloud that would follow me around all like for days on end after the quiz. And I had friends come up to me because I would complain to them a lot because I was like a huge complainer at Shipley. Like, I have to tell you, I, they would just be like, Jesse, this isn't a big deal. I don't understand why like, <laughs> you're up, so upset over this score. As a teacher, I, you know, yeah, what's funny you mentioned is as a teacher, I certainly don't know anything about kids coming to me to complain about a point here, a point there. <laughs> but hey, can you round that up, right? Those sorts of conversations. But I was one of those. I was definitely one of those kids. I was. So you, you said you said you regret it. Like, what? how do you look back on that, knowing what you know now about sort of like long term growth and achievement? Like, why, why do you look back on it and say, oh, I kind of wish maybe I wouldn't have gone about it that way? I think I would have retained more information and really engaged in the learning process a little bit in a much more healthy way. Um, and obviously like it's easy to say, Oh, in retrospect, I wouldn't do it. But when you're like 16 or 17 and you're trying to, <laughs> you're, it's like your life is in that bubble of Shipley and like you want your, your end all be all is like getting into a competitive college. And then that's, that just becomes the only thing that matters. Um, and so me annoying teachers or classmates about like my grades and stuff like that seemed like a minor sacrifice because if, you know, in the off chance, one in a million chance that they end up agreeing with me and changing my score, that would get me one step closer 
to getting into a good school, but that never happened. It never happened. And it was ultimately counterproductive because when you focus so much on the numbers and the scores, first of all, grades, I think invariably matter, of course, they, they're important, but at the end of the day, they do not, they're, they're, I, I believe they're just like a, a stepping stone, a way to gauge your progress over a period of time. Um, and I'll never forget Mrs. Weigel when she told me one time I was really upset and I, I was like on the brink of tears because I wanted to get my, I got a, a B or a B minus on a, an essay. And she told me, Jesse, success is not like this. It's like this, right? It's, right. it's never going to Jagged. be deter- Exactly. It's not going to, even if you got an A, that is not dispositive of, of your mastery of the material. That's simply one assessment, a, a snapshot of a period of time in that course. Um, and even if you got straight A's, even if you were valedictorian at Shipley, that does not guarantee you success in the long run. Because at the end of the day, grades are a way to motivate you to get your work done and to make sure that you're on track, but they are only a guide, uh, like a, like a Atlas or a map. Yeah. This, this is, you know, there's, there's a considerable amount of data around this. This is, you know, you can make very, um, thoughtful and reasonable arguments, you know, around the, the simple fact that grades are not very predictive of success. To your point, you know, they can be markers of progress and personal progress, but there are so many different sort of, um, you know, variables that can be impacting the outcome of a grade, right? What What's the teacher like? Did you sleep well that night? You know, what day of the week is it? What age are you? All sorts of different things, even outside of the brain, right? Precisely, Outside yeah. of IQ and things of that nature. And so, you know, Sean Acor, who's a, a big pause site guy and consultant to a lot of the Fortune Top 50, he always says, you know, I could roll a pair of dice and it would be as predictive of future success as, you know, GPA in some cases. And we find that with standardized test scores as well in many cases. Exactly. I just wanted to add on to that point because that kind of bleeds into the legal field as well. And I talk about that in my interview with Rick Merrill, who's the founder he graduated from UCLA um, Law and he founded Gavalytics after working in big law for a period of time. And it's basically the same deal when you're in, in trial court. So the judge doesn't necessarily always uh, agree with the, even if you're, you formulate the most compelling legal argument, they have, trial judges have a lot of discretion. They may, uh, you know, rule against you simply because they're, they, they're having a bad day. That's literally what happened. So his software- They're human beings too, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> right, yeah. it, merit and, and you know, having per, a perfect resume and, and grades, I think it's always a good thing, right? But it's, doesn't, it doesn't guarantee you anything. Uh, and I think that same, that same thing applies in the professional world. And it, so what he did was the software was really cool because it's basically a database where it compiles all of the judges and their, deci- and their ruling decisions and it calculates using an algorithm how likely uh, X, Y, or Z judge would be to rule in favor of this type of legal argument or, or that legal argument or, and so on and so forth. So it really is, it kind of harkens back to the fact that uh, be, being able to have like a high EQ, being able to understand how people think and having a broad network and uh, really being able to uh, relate to people from different backgrounds and different contexts. That is a skill that I think can carry over in any field you do and will have a result in a higher likelihood of success than, than any number. And it does. And it does. It's EQ in general is highly, highly predictive of success across all sorts of realms, right? Social, professional, um, you know, psychological, whatever it might be. That's a really key piece. And that's part of, you know, I think why Shipley really emphasizes a three-legged stool, right? So, okay, content and some knowledge, sure, that can be important in certain cases. But you also know have to know how to navigate your own feelings, your own emotions, when you're not feeling motivated and you have to grind, when you've gone past the tipping point, you need to pull back and practice self-care, how to interact with the other people around you. These are all things that you're touching on. And it sounds like, you know, what you're suggesting is, okay, fine, if you're doing well with GPA and, you know, test scores and things like that. But you better make sure you're cultivating these other skills along the way and leaning on people and learning how to sort of amplify oneself through a community and through a network. Exactly, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the book 
I have two questions. So first, tell us why you ultimately wanted to write the book and what your hopes for it are. And then I want to talk a little bit more about maybe some additional lessons that you've learned. I don't know if everything we've talked about so far are like personal Jesse lessons versus, you know, what others contributed to the book. So we'll get into that. But for right now, tell us, why do you want to write this thing? Great question. I, it, there's a, there were a lot of factors that went into it, um, but I can pinpoint a few specific moments that were really uh, pivotal to, to my decision to, because it is like a huge um, task to do in the middle of a JD program. But I, I, this is something I just needed to do because um, there were so many experiences that I think first-year law students go through that are universal and apply. And it's like that saying where it's like, be the hero you needed like when you were younger. Um, and, and I wanted to write something that would have helped me when I was going through it, when I was experiencing those hardships my first year of law school, something that would have helped me pull myself up and you know, be like, I, I, there is the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and I think the experience that I was feeling a lot of emotions, I was very appreciative of the fact that I was at a competitive law school and USC is a great network. I really enjoyed being in Los Angeles. At the same time, I was really disappointed in myself. I was angry. I was frustrated uh, with my grades, with the result. And um, there were uh, moments where, you know, I had very unpleasant experiences interviewing at some of the more competitive law firms. I'm not going to name any names, obviously, but just OCI is like a huge deal in law school. And I think it's over, it's, it's really overemphasized because um, people- OCI o is- Oh, sorry. OCI is on-campus interviewing. So it's like the recruiting process ah, okay. for law firms. Uh, and it's so interesting because everyone, when they first apply to law schools, talk, talks about like, oh, they want to like be a human rights lawyer, where they want to like help with immigration law, where they want to reform the system and they want to help other people. But then once they hear about- uh, you know, how much money like a first year associate or second year associate makes at like one of these larger law firms, all those things kind of like go out the window and then they focus and I myself included focused, like focused entirely on like getting one of those really prestigious positions. It's like the, you know, the carrot at the end of the stick, like you just needed to have that because it was such a, a big deal to everyone. It was like the status, it was the prestige, it was just the luxury of it all. Um, and so it was really I was disappointed in myself for, you know, falling for that, first of all, but also... Well, ex it, uh, explain that for us for a sec, because I was curious. My question was going to be, is that fulfilling? Exactly. And not everybody's after fulfillment. Some people are after, you know, material well-being and things of that nature, right? Different strokes for different folks. Yeah. But it sounds like, I mean, you say upset with yourself. Give us a little bit more insight into that. So I'm, first of all, I'm very idealistic, like, and I think that's something that has helped me a lot, but also uh, is, it can be burdensome because I want to, like service to community, that's something that I, I, I've cared about for ever since I was at Shipley. And that, that, I mean, that's literally in the Shipley motto. Like, so yep. I uh, was disappointed that I was focusing so intently on, I had focused so intently for the first year of law school on getting one of these positions without really knowing why I wanted it or what was at the end of the what was in it for me aside from like the money first of all because no one really enters law school i don't believe knowing exactly what area of law like i talked about wanting to go into immigration law when i applied to law school and now i'm at an employment law firm so it's like completely off track but people when they first become lawyers associates juniors attorneys they're always going to be working on a variety of different cases it doesn't you don't have a specialty until like much later on right so i get the prestige and I get the importance and I don't like, I'm not shaming anyone with who, who, you know, is motivated by, uh, you know, status and, and, and mm -hmm. all of those materialistic things. Mm -hmm. I think that's important to have to an extent, but I think it was so interesting how, uh, abrupt that shift was in terms of like literally all of us collectively were from all these sort of social justice oriented goals to, um, just basically do it. Cause like these large law firms, first of all, yes, they are different in certain aspects and they are, they are ranked according to vault and da, 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 like they're, that's important. But at the end of the day, they are, you know, primarily working for larger corporations, larger companies. Um, and, and second of all, they are not highly differentiable amongst one another. Like there's no real reason you would want to go to one rank number one law firm versus the number two large law firm. Like they're all going to have a variety of different practice areas and you're going to be exposed to a lot of stuff, which is great for networking and everything. But 
I think it's incredible. You're going to find the right fit. You have to find the right fit. And I think it's so important to your first year of law school or even before law school, really, to have a a very clear idea of what you want to do with your your legal education. Um, And I did not have a clear goal in mind. I was just like, oh, I took this business law course. So now I'm going to go to law school and, and really challenge myself. But what is at the end of the road? You know what I mean? What was my ultimate concern, which is something that Angela or Dr. Dr. talks about in her book. It's like, ultimate concern is something that organizes and frames everything in your life to help you um, succeed in the long run. And that is what gritty people have is having that uh, sincere purpose. And I did not have that at all. It was just like, oh, I just want it because it's, it's a pretty, it's a shiny object at the, uh, without, outside my grasp. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that purpose piece and not everybody has it, not everybody needs it, but Ultimately, it can be highly motivating because it's the why. It, it, it's very much a focusing mechanism, right? A source of direction. Um, and it sounds like you have gotten a sense of it, maybe even figured it out. I'm curious, and this sort of dovetails into my next question about maybe advice for you know current high school juniors, seniors, college graduate graduates, recent college graduates that are kind of looking for that thing, which I think a lot of them are in my experience, right? It's kind of like, okay, I've been, I've maybe existed in this narrative, this sort of like rat racy kind of narrative to a certain extent. What do I actually want out of life? I think is sort of the question. What advice might you have for people who are, are maybe pondering those sorts of questions? Absolutely. So I think it's going to be different for everyone. And I think, but the, the main thing I want to emphasize is for, especially for college grads, take some time to really think about what you want or why you want a law degree. Um, because there are so many factors that go into, because the JD pro- program is very, very rigid and, and uh, it's, it's wrote in the sense that everyone kind of goes through the same kind uh, process. You do your one all, one all year, then you are summer associate and then, well, you're summer associate your second summer and then you end up working at that law firm in the long term probably. Uh, and then you have to take the bar, obviously, but that's a whole lot of responsibility. And if you don't have a specific goal in mind that you're really passionate about, it can be so easy to, to just drop out or give up halfway through because there is so much of weight that comes along with um, having a, getting just simply getting the JD. And I talk about um, in my interview with uh, Morel Raza, who is the president of the Public Interest Law Foundation, uh, she's amazing. She's done so much work with um, she uh, a lot of she's she's very oriented towards like uh, social justice and human rights, and um, has done some work uh, at I think it was with um, helping sexually exploited children and and um, working in the uh, district attorney's office um, and her her whole explanation was in the year after she graduated undergrad she spent a year working the sales i think sales or marketing position as like a telemarketer and she just explained to me it was just like the most depressing experience of her life like she was making money and she was making a comfortable amount and that was great but she was also just feeling like she was just bothering people the entire time because people would just like not be interested in the product. They would just be like, why are you calling me? Da, 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 da. Like it just wasn't adding any value to her life. And she felt like she wasn't adding value to other people's lives. And so when she went to law school, yeah, yeah she knew she needed to do something. I was just going to say value, value added, right? That that's kind of what you're getting to is like, how, how can I add value? Which really scientifically is what purpose is. How do I take what's unique about me and contribute it to something? Right. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, is that, I'm curious thinking about, you know, so, so the book is underdog, right? 12 inspirational stories for the despondent law student. Is that one of the themes you found in these 12 stories? Were there any consistent themes? You're like, yeah, that's present in all 12 of these stories. What are some of the major lessons you pulled from, from talking to these folks? There definitely are a lot of running themes. So one of the themes obviously is small wins. Uh, that was like a huge recurring theme. Everyone in the book kind of had like some kind of right. something come, uh, some event that kind of nudged them in the right direction that, that they just kept building the moment, momentum upon. 
the second was networking. Pe these people really valued the pe those who were in their community and tried to help others as much as they could because they knew that by investing in their community, investing in the people that they associate with in their close circle uh, and expanding that network, those people would ultimately be able to uh, invest back in them, not in a transactional sense, but in the sense that people, they really cared about those who, who were in their immediate uh, circle and those in their immediate circle cared about them as well. And I think that this is, this is Adam Grant's work a little bit, right? This is like, be a giver. If you're adding value to others, that tends to come back to you as well. Yes. And it's, a, by the way, also very nice for well-being, just being kind to others and, and trying to look out for others. Exactly, so, yeah. Lots of beautiful synergy there, yeah. And the third thing you said, I'm sorry to cut you off. I think the third thing was definitely that they all knew that grades were not the end-all be-all. They, they, even though, each of them, even though they didn't have the best qualifications for whatever job or program or position they were really, really shooting for, they just uh, gave it a try anyway. And many of the times they succeeded. Like I had a professor, Professor Beverly Rich, who is getting her PhD at, in strategy at Marshall. She was a former litigator. She had no quantitative experience whatsoever. She just didn't have experience in, in any of the quantitative sciences. And the PhD in strategy was hot, very, very uh, quant heavy. And she applied for and got in. And it was just, even though she lacked those, uh, I guess, criteria that are usually attractive to these people in the, in, in the PhD program, she still gave it a shot and, and you know, succeeded. And there are a lot of, so many stories about that as well. They didn't see the value in themselves based on the number on their transcript. They saw the value in themselves because of the sum of everything that they uh, experienced in their entire lives. Mm. Yeah. And willing to have a go on top of that, right? Like we, we always kind of talk about optimism or willingness to have a go. It doesn't guarantee success. But if you don't give it a shot, you're pretty much guaranteed, guaranteeing failure at least, right? Like have a go, see what happens, right? right? Did, all, did all 12 of these people, you think they have a, a sense of and an attachment to a core purpose? I think most of them do, yeah. I think some of them are maybe, including myself, are have a general idea, but maybe are, are working towards having a more specific goal or yeah. something more tailored Clarity. to them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think all of them do have a purpose for sure. Okay. So again, the book is Underdog, 12 Inspirational Stories for the Despondent Law Student. Uh, tell us where we can find you, website, social, those sorts of things. So yeah, on my social, it's uh, Instagram at Wangesque, W-A-N-G-E-S-Q-U-E. Uh, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. I think it's just slash slash jesse wang usc so j-e-s-s-e-w-a-n-g usc uh, on amazon if you just google underdog jesse wang or if you just search underdog jesse wang it should show up jesse this has been really wonderful i've enjoyed our conversation thanks so much uh for your time we will be putting your social media and website and whatnot in the show notes again the book is underdog 12 inspirational stories for the despondent law student and uh thank you again Thank you so much. Our show is produced by the Shipley School, an independent pre-K through grade 12 day school, rethinking education and daring to hope that we can in fact build a better future. Come on and join us.